tonight. I would like to welcome the end. Thank you. Let me scoot up this a little bit more. Yes, and I am I am very grateful to so many of you guys that came from the Sunday night um, meeting that we have, Surrender to Win, uh, and to support me and uh, and to uh, just fellowship. I, I appreciate your fellowship because I am finding out that it's good to fellowship with other people and not just get into myself. But for tonight, I get to get into myself a little bit, right? Don't I? Um, so uh, Paul, at one of the meetings about, I don't know, three months ago, after I knew that I was going to be speaking at this meeting, he made the comment at one of the meetings about that there is a phrase in the big book that says, and I pulled the big book off the shelf, right? And he says, I couldn't believe somebody is like pulling it off the shelf. It should be right there, right ready to go, right? That's, and he is that big book thumper that we need. <laughs> and I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that because it was like, you know what? You better get that thing down. You better dust it off. You better get ready. And, um, and I'm so grateful that I did because, you know, up to that point, I was just reading little passages out of the big book and out of the 12 and 12 that were pertinent to maybe what step I was working on. Instead of reading it, really reading it again, I, you know, I've had, I've been in the program a long time and I've read the whole thing through years ago, but I, I wasn't grasping it and I, and, and. It it's it it grows with you. I'm finding, and uh, but but the only way it can grow with you is to get into it. So I pulled mine off the shelf, and it looks like this. Yes. And I cannot tell you. I wish I could say it looks like this because of how much I've gotten into it. No, this is and see, I teach school. So I've heard lots of the homework stories about the dog ate it. This is my dog's doing. And he also did the same thing to my 12 and 12 to match, right? And so I haven't replaced it because of all the old things that I'd written in there. I didn't want to lose any of that. So I'll have to get a new big book and, and uh, start writing that in. We, we don't think he's an alcoholic, my dog. He's a beagle named Bosco, but he is an alpoaholic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So in an attempt to share my story in a way to truly help others stay sober, I tried to pull out only key parts of my life and find out how they align with the big book. And with astonishing clarity, my life can be completely mapped out in the big book. I know you have no problem believing that. And I should have known, but it, it took me what it takes. Uh, and if you are an alcoholic, I have no doubt that it does the same for your life as well. So going back when I was a little girl, um, I was a very ambitious girl, high energy, always uh, had something to do, someplace to go. And uh, so I would, I would tell my mom my list of things that I had to do that day. 
And, uh, and we were not an alcoholic. Nobody drank in my family. We, I grew up Methodist, and, and Bruce knows, I mean, the Methodists don't shy away from alcohol. But in my particular family, I was adopted, and they did not uh, drink at all, and we didn't have it in the house. Really wasn't an issue. And uh, so I would tell my mom, though, this list of things that I was going to do in a day. And, and I would tell her, you know, going to go swimming. I'm going to go, I'm going to watch this much TV, da, 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 da. And, and she would say, Deanne, Deanne, you're making me tired just listening to your plan for the day. And, and I kept that pace into high school. And so I grew up in a little town called Tawanda, Kansas, which is outside of Wichita. And uh, so a smaller rural high school, it was a unified district. There was only about 100 people in my graduating class. So when you're in a, a school that size and you're talented in any way at all, you end up doing everything. And so that, that's what happened with me. I, I was in debate. I was cheerleading. I was in music and in drama. And so, so that was one of my favorites, too, was the music and the drama. And so one night after uh, our big high school drama uh, musical in, um, in my junior year that I had one of the lead parts in, and... Uh, um, was at the cast party afterwards, you know, and one of the guys I was with said, how about I put some uh, Jack Daniels in your Dr. Pepper? And I was like, well, okay, might as well try that. I'm a junior in high school now. And, um, and I did, and I'll tell you what, after being so nervous for so long, so keyed up, because that's how I operated, was keyed up, always into doing something, um, all of that pressure and all of that anxiety, whoosh, yes, totally euphoric, like nothing I had ever experienced before and wanted to do it again, especially when I needed to relax, right? But I didn't take off real fast with it all because I had too much to do. So, so my, my alcoholism came about a little bit slower but in Bill's story on page one of the big book, he says, I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people concerning drink. I decided not to care if my parents, me personally, I decided I don't care anymore if my parents didn't drink. Um, the college I attended for my master's program had me sign a no drinking as part of the application. Um, the private Christian-based schools I taught at you were not supposed to be drinking as a, as a teacher. Um, no, one, so no one was supposed to drink alcohol, but I decided that they just had the wrong interpretation of the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. Many people can drink alcohol without serious repercussions. But for me, I had already begun lying to myself and justifying my drinking, and the door of alcoholism was opened and it moved through me like a slow cancer. So during my second marriage, I managed to hold down two jobs, one of them teaching. I finished my master's degree. I helped raise four stepchildren all at the same time. I was ambitious 
and busy. And as Paul says about his life on page three in the big book, for the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. Now, as a teacher, they weren't throwing money at me, but, but you do get my drift, that, that things were good. I was excelling in my profession, and, uh, and I, I was having a good time doing it. I received a Teacher of the Month and Teacher of the Year awards. I graduated my master's program with honors and eventually became an elementary principal at a prestigious Christian private school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was drinking uh, pretty much every single evening by the time I took that principal job, but, but so far it wasn't affecting my life completely. Things were going along pretty great until it was discovered at that school that the elementary PE coach was a child molester. Now he had been hired by someone else, but still I got caught in the middle of the broil. My demise didn't happen all at once, but now the real unraveling of my life begins. No, not all at once. Alcohol is much more patient and cunning as it breaks apart my moral fiber at this point. Bill writes in the big book on page four, abruptly in October of 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. And just like, pa, just like Bill, story, kind of oldest time, something monumental is going to happen. It's life. That's a given. Whether it's a birth or a death or a marriage, the stock exchange, or in my case, a huge court case. Something in life is going to act as a catalyst that's either going to be used in your life to help you and build you up and strengthen you, or it's going to be used for destruction. Well, since, like Bill, I was already depending on alcohol to give me those good times, or as I would call it, my treat, um, it was even easier for me to use it now to help me through the bad times. And only alcohol for me has no healing components at all, right down to its molecular structure. It's just not good for me. Now for Bill, just as Bill writes on uh, page five, liquor ceased to be a luxury, and for me it became a necessity. Now my life gets really ugly after that. So to save us all some time, I have condensed it into lots more drinking, more partying with friends in Kansas City, having multiple affairs, one including my best friend's ex-husband, getting another divorce, drinking on the job, losing multiple jobs, uh, marrying an alcoholic, going through six rehab programs of varying lengths, and divorcing a third time, and finally living pretty much on the streets in Tulsa, Oklahoma, had it not been for an Oxford house. And an Oxford house is a little bit like a halfway house, somewhat. Um, uh, anyway, so you can, you can fill in the blanks. That, that covered years and years of drinking right there. And for this church mouse, to say that I was demoralized is an understatement. 
Bill's story says on page eight, alcohol was my master. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me, but for a bit. Like Bill, I wasn't finished yet. Then romance and another marriage to my husband there, Ron, brought me to Arizona. And I wish I could tell you that Ron and I just lived happily ever after, but a geographical cure didn't work for me either. Unfortunately, acceptance of the disease of alcoholism in my life has been a hard-fought battle. Perhaps being adopted, being raised in a completely non-alcoholic environment, or just my self-stubborn self-will, or my ambitious nature. But no matter what excuses I come up with, I have to accept in my innermost core being that I have the disease of alcoholism. The big book tells me that I must cease fighting. And on page 417, it describes the kind of acceptance that I must practice every day in order for me to live. I must have acceptance of my disease of alcoholism, acceptance of God's will for my life, acceptance to do God's will for my life, acceptance to change the things in my life to line up with God's will, and acceptance of the promises then of true peace and fulfillment in my life. <sighs> so here I am again, after drinking again last July. One more attempt and one more failure, it says in the big book on page 151. And it wasn't glamorous and it wasn't pretty. And I awakened after a three-day hideous blackout only to face the four horsemen of terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair again. <laughs> and now I am at step six. And the 12 and 12 calls it the step, oh, there it did come clear over here. Sorry about that. Um, so uh, for, uh, let's see. And now I'm at step six, and I am starting to, to really grab a hold of it. And, and thanks to being able to speak tonight and really digging into uh, the, the big book, I am starting to grasp it more and be much more willing to get rid of these defects. Um, it calls the 12 and 12 calls it the step that separates the men from the boys. And for me, I have learned that it defines how serious I am about staying sober. Am I really finished with the character defects that have continually sent me back to drinking? For many years, I have complimented myself by thinking, oh, I've been forgiven back in step four. And, you know, in so many of these rehabs, that's kind of where you get to. You get to step four. You write that out. I've written that out several times at different um, rehabs. And then the counselor listens to it for step five. And then, boom, you're back home again with all these character <laughs> defects that send you back to drinking. Yeah. And that's what would happen to me every single single time. Um, I don't need to dwell on character defects, I decided. God has made me just the way he wants me to be. Yes, he has made me an alcoholic. 
but does he desire that I die in alcoholism? I mean, am I going to buy into, well, everybody's got to die of something? I can't tell you how many times I've drank because I decided that, well, somebody's got to die of something. It might as well be alcoholism over and over again. A thousand times no. Truth is completely empowering. But continually lying to myself has only added to fear and paranoia and emotional instability in my life. Because I think now, you know, after a few months sober, I can handle a job. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And life appears to be more manageable again. But who is truly managing it? And yes, I am powerless over alcohol, but I kind of like having my mind numbed because facing life on life's terms is difficult, and it's no fun to me when I get into that alcoholic mind that the big book talks about. The big book warns me on page 41 of holding on to this alcoholic mind. I will have no effective mental defense against the first drink. My problems now appear when I'm trying to sift through the daily minutia of life, like how to handle my free time, how to handle boredom, which is really, when you think about it, most of life is made up of those times. So now I don't drink. How do I go to parties and functions? How do I travel? And for a while, I just don't. Because the big book does suggest not to go if I'm just going to sit there wishing for a drink. But I am human. And I've got to tell you, too, when I have gone to those parties, the, the functions, the karaoke nights, it hasn't been about making, making relationship with people, right? It hasn't been about talking to them. It was like an opportunity to drink. It was an opportunity to drink. That's really, when I get to the bottom line of it, that's what I wanted to do and sink farther into myself and not have to think about making conversation with you, right? I just, it was it's about me and drinking. But I am a human and I'm made to be social, made to, to have relationships with people. So for me to sit at home and be a dry drunk is not realistic and it sends me back to drinking and the temporary relaxing of my emotions that is a complete facade. It's like being caught in the story of Little Black Sambo, one of my favorite children's books. When I was growing up, my grandma would read it to me. And it's about this little boy from India. And he gets these brand new clothes. And I love brand new clothes anyway. And so that was enticing to me about this story. He gets these brand new clothes and he's got his little vest on. And he has his umbrella to shade him from the sun. And he has the little pantaloons. And then the main thing that I love about Little Black Sambo are his uh, little purple velvet shoes with pointy toes. Oh, he was strutting around the jungle like hot stuff, right? Because he had these new duds on. And I just, I love that story. Well, pretty soon the tigers come. And they think he looks pretty nice too. And they want his clothes. And so they bargain with little Black Sambo that if he will give up his clothes to them, uh, that he... Uh, that they won't eat him, right? 
So sure enough, he bargains with the tigers, and each tiger gets a different piece. One of them gets the umbrella, one of them gets the fancy vest, and so forth. Well, for these tigers, they are jealous, ambitious, always wanting more, starting to remind me of my alcoholism, always wanting more, always wanting something else, um, always wanting your stuff, always wanting to be more popular, and gonna, it, it, it goes on and on and on um, in an alcoholic mind. And uh, so these tigers, they end up getting very jealous of each other in these clothes and they run around the tree and they run around the tree and they run around and run around in circles chasing each other. Just like I chase alcohol, planning when I'm going to drink it, um, how much I'm going to drink, uh, where I'm going to get it, what little bottles I'm going to put it in, how I'm going to hide it. Uh, it just, the madness just goes on and on for what? When it comes right down to it, for nothing, for nothing that lasts. It's a facade. And, and of course, these tigers, they run around that tree until they die and turn into butter. And that's another reason I really like that story, because of the butter. Then he can take all that butter home, and his mama makes him stacks of pancakes. And they have pancakes dripping, Bruce, with butter. Yes. <laughs> I knew you would like that. But the fact of the matter is they die. That's what alcohol does. That's the only place that it's trying to send me is to die. I have seen two funerals of, I've been to two funerals now of uh, two people that I have known that were alcoholics. And one was just recently with uh, a gentleman that uh, lived in our community uh, out there at Sundance. And he's a good man. He was a fun guy. I went bowling with him. My husband played some poker with him. And when he wasn't drinking, he was a great guy, but he just, he just couldn't stop. And he ended up dying in it, and his funeral was not fun. And it left, I, there was just this tension in the air, and you just knew that the wife was dealing with bitterness and anger and resentment. And then I remembered, I recalled while I was sitting there during that, that there was a funeral of an alcoholic back in Tulsa that I knew that had uh, died. She had only been sober for a year, an older, older lady, um, uh, and uh, my age, and uh, she had only been sober a year and um, contacted uh, lung cancer. And so I'm not very far in the program, of course, at that point. And I and I, I I'm thinking, just drink, right? You're gonna you're gonna die of lung cancer, just drink. She didn't. And I'm so and she I know, I mean, huh. The difference between those two funerals, she only lived for another year, right? So she only had two years of sobriety, and she only lived for another year with that uh, cancer. And that funeral was a glorious event. She had some daughters that they went over and over again about their appreciation for her as their mother. 
It was a joyful event. It showed hope and it showed restoration. It showed restoration. I want a legacy like that. I, that, is, that is the legacy I want to leave. The big book calls this phenomena that, that this alcoholic mind phenomena that I've been talking about, it calls it the alcoholic mind on page 41. And it says that I get a release from that. It tells me on page 84, by ceasing fighting with anything or anyone, even alcohol itself. Then I am placed into a position of neutrality, safe, and protected as long as I am spiritually fit. When you fight against something, you antagonize it, and it wants to hit back, and it does hit back, and usually a little bit harder than what you've hit it before, and harder and harder. Okay, I've seen this out on the playground dozens of times. <laughs> but um, uh, I came across a little story, and I'm going to share this one with you too. William Penn, if you remember or have ever heard, uh, he was that William Penn was the founder of the province of Pennsylvania, and uh, he was a Quaker. Uh, uh, in his spiritual life, and he had quite a quandary um, in the Oxford University that he went to. They were swashbuckling fellows, and so they all had their swords. And so William Penn had this quandary of carrying a sword. So the other students at Oxford University all did, and uh, so he asked his advisor, his leader uh, there at the time, about it, thinking that he would say, no, he should surely not carry a sword, and uh, not he shouldn't be carrying the sword. But he asked him, should I, can I carry it? And this was what he said in an answer. Carry thy sword until thou canst no longer carry it. A year or so later, Penn discontinued the practice quite easily. Now, this doesn't mean that you keep drinking until you don't think about it anymore, right? But what it does mean is when you're faced with some negative condition, withdraw your attention from it by building the opposite into your subconscious. Then the undesirable thing falls away like an overripe fruit. So if I am doing what my higher power, what my God is wanting me to do, and I'm making relationship with other people, the alcohol is going to not have any use in my life. And, it's, and that, that thinking, that alcoholic mind, becomes totally undesirable. I asked myself time and again, as I've watched my sponsor over the last year, how does she go to functions and travel all over the world like she does? And Doug knows, my Pam, my sponsor, travels everywhere. In fact, she's gone tonight traveling uh, out in the States somewhere. And, and she goes to parties almost every single, you know, get-togethers and functions almost every single evening. And how does she do that without drinking? And all the while, she completely enjoys everything that she does. 
because she has accepted in her inner core being that alcohol is absolutely and completely useless to making her into the woman that God has designed her to be. And the same is true for me. In the 12 and 12 on page 68, it says, so the difference between the boys and the men is the difference between striving for a self-determined object or for the perfect object, which is of God. And for me personally, that objective is one of relationship with others and my higher power, which I call God. Not a relationship with alcohol any longer. Now, this is where I'm supposed to tell you about all the wonderful things that sobriety has brought to my life. However, in what, typical human alcoholic style, I want my blessings right now. I want them fast, and I want them abundantly overflowing. Not only that, but... Uh, I want it to, I want to feel good when all of it's happening, right? Uh, but that's just not life and it's not realistic or practical for anyone who is healing from a disease, but that's not life. Uh, my disease moved slowly and carefully and now my healing in this past year is moving slowly and carefully with a completely opposite agenda. Bill says on page 15, I was not too well at the time, and I was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. Those words, when I read them, gave me some comfort because I do feel sorry for myself that I cannot go to parties and that uh, to and I cannot drink at all these parties that I go to in my active adult community, and then I get angry and angry at them and angry at my friends, and my husband, and at the dogs, and at life. Why can't I just enjoy semi-retirement like they can? Ah, but as I pointed out, some of them, and I've discovered, are not really enjoying it. They are like the man in the big book that pulls out his slippers and the bottle of whiskey, you know, and, and, is, and is dead within just a few months. And then I sulk, and I've isolated, and I've stewed, and I've prayed, and then I call someone on the other side of that, and I go to a meeting, and I talk to my sponsor, and somehow, by accepting the fact, the real truth, that I can reach out and enjoy this world without alcohol, allows my higher power, who I call God, to turn that anger into some positive energy now. Positive energy that I can now use to maintain things like having a nice home and a nice vehicle and a fulfilling job. Uh, I just got a really good job for next year even for, yeah, for, uh, a reading interventionist where I'm not going to be teaching a whole classroom of kids, which is getting a little overwhelming, but I'm going to be teaching a small group. That would have never happened if I had continued to drink like I was. Never. <clears throat> so, um, so I can, let me go back to what I was saying here. Uh, fulfilling job, a solid, good, solid marriage, friendships, and my sweet dog pets. All are blessings that I self-sabotage the minute that I would pick up a drink. 
It is also positive energy that I need for keeping my health, which is hugely important to me. On page, and they, it's kind of funny, the XXs, right? The XXXI in the beginning of the big book, it says, I knew the man by name and partly recognized him, but there the resemblance ended. From a trembling, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I know I have experienced this health of mind and body in myself and in countless other people that I have seen enter the program over the years of my attendance. Another part of healing in the past year has been to deal with the acute depression and for really lack of a better term, when my mind starts spinning, that uh, bad memories create in me now. If I get caught in that grip of low self-esteem, which I do, created from dwelling on those memories, um, it just becomes debilitating if I, if I just continue to mull over that. I have learned that through step four of this program, I can choose to view my scars, which are truly outer evidences of an inside work of healing in my body. That's what a scar is, right? It, 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 the scar is, is showing your body that it is healing. So I've got these scars. I can either uh, use that as a reminder of hurt or as a reminder of how God stepped into those situations of brokenness and destruction and set me on a path of healing, igniting hope in uh, situations of despair. Viewed in that positive light, I can, and I'm quoting the Apostle Paul from the Bible, he was actually a Christian killer before he uh, found his higher power. So I figure if he can glory in his past, I'm in pretty good company. So he says, uh, I viewed in positive light, I can glory in my infirmities, in my scars and character defects, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, my God is ultimately faithful to redeem and renew what I have destroyed. Today I can go to bed in peace and contentment each night without passing out and wake up with renewed hope with no hangover. Even when I don't feel well mentally, I can begin my day with prayer and thank him for removing from me the obsession to drink because I truly do want my life, as the third step prayer says, to bear witness of and help others to find God's power, love, and way of life by doing God's will. And I'll conclude with a statement from the doctor's opinion in the big book. He said, Dr. Silkworth said, I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book whether it is chewed up or not. Read the big book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. Amen. That's what I have to say.